You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Robert Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 37, the 1992 production of Falsettos. And with us today is the author of that chapter, Professor Jack Leshner of Columbia University School of the Arts. Professor Leshner wrote the lyrics for the 2010 off-Broadway musical The Kid. His producing credits in film and television include The Fog of War, Blue Valentine, The New Yorker Presents, and the pilot of Mad Men. As an executive at Miramax in Film 4, he was involved in the production and development of dozens of movies, including The Crying Game, Goodwill Hunting, and The Full Monty. His book, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, was published in 2000, and his picture book, Mary Had a Little Lamp, in 2008. Currently, Professor Leshner is chair of the graduate film program at the Columbia University School of the Arts. Professor Leshner, it is an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Rob. I'm delighted to be doing this. So my first question for you is, what makes Falsettos a key musical? There are so many factors, but I guess uh, the main one that uh, you guys focused on when you put it in the book and that I was happy to follow up on is the idea that while, as I write in the chapter, it wasn't the first gay musical, it wasn't the first AIDS musical, but it was the first musical to address the AIDS crisis that actually reached a broad audience. Um, uh, that, that went to Broadway, that uh, um, won awards that became part of the musical theater canon. And we ask this to all of our authors, and I'll ask you, you know, there were tons of shows that you could have chosen to write about, um, but there was something about falsettos that made you want to codify it. Why did you choose falsettos? It's one of my favorite shows. Um, it really goes back to uh, college. I went to Yale, uh, which had a thriving theater scene then as now. And I guess my senior year, I saw a student production of March of the Falsettos. Um, the second half, Falsetto Land, didn't exist yet, uh, much less the full-length Falsettos musical. Um, and I have to say, first of all, it was a damn good student production. I unfortunately don't have the program, don't know who directed it, don't know the names of any of the actors who I didn't know. But it's one of those few moments in a lifetime where you just get flattened by a work of art. 
I was flattened by it. I, I rushed out and got the CD. Well, it wasn't the CD. I got the album the next day and played it and played it. And then when the CD came out and then when, of course, uh, Falsetto Land came out, um, I just became obsessed with that material. Partly, I guess it's odd because I'm straight. So I wasn't, it wasn't the boldness of the gay content that flattened me. It was actually the boldness of the Jewish content. Mm. Um, it, this is also an unusually Jewish musical um, uh, for a story that is not like Fiddler on the Roof set in the old country. Um, it's one of the few musicals about contemporary urban American Jews, um, which I happen to be. Uh, and so that was just, you know, there was something else though, that is something that I write about in the chapter and that uh, really was sort of a fundamental moment in my understanding of narrative structure, which happens to be what I teach at Columbia, uh, which is uh, right at the top of the show after the opening number for Jews in Room Bitching, Marvin, the hero comes out, or the protagonist, uh, he's not very heroic, comes out and sings that, so the situation's this, it's not hard to comprehend. I divorced my wife, I left my child, uh, and I ran off with my friend, but I want a tight-knit family. And we know at once, this is impossible. We have a protagonist who wants something he cannot have. And that creates this just wonderful coiled spring of tension that drives the whole show. Uh, and it was, it's something that I've come back to really in everything I've worked on since. Mm. Every stage piece, every movie is just trying to recapture that feeling of excitement and dread that I had at that moment watching March of the Falsettos of realizing this cannot possibly go well. I love, I absolutely love that. Let me ask you a question going back, if I may, which is, you said, you know, there are, um, Jew this is also a Jewish musical as well as a gay musical, um, between Fiddler and the Roof and Falsettos, which we know are drastically different because one is old world, one is new world. What are some thematic elements, however, in terms of Judaic religion that you see that both Fiddler and Falsettos have, regardless of their time periods? Well, for one thing, Fiddler on the Roof, while it's set in the old country, it is written by contemporary urban Jewish Americans uh, and quite brilliant ones. I got to meet uh, the composer Jerry Bach before he died, because uh, the show you mentioned earlier that I wrote the lyrics for the kid, we were the proud recipients of the Jerry Bach Award, which was a lunch with Jerry Bach. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, it, I, I'm glad that I actually had the chance to tell him how much his work meant to me. Um, and he could not have been more generous and more delightful. Uh, I have never gotten to meet uh, the other two brilliant collaborators of uh, Fiddler on the Roof, one of them it's too late to meet, uh, Joseph Stein, the book writer, but Sheldon Harnick, the lyricist, uh, still kicking and uh, amazing. And I think I, I've never seen an interview with William Finn, the creator of Falsettos, in which he gives any credit to Sheldon Harnick as an influence, but I can't imagine it's not there. Mm. Um, again, because of the way Harnick is 
unabashedly Jewish in his work and talks about Jewish characters, but also just the sharpness of his wit um, and the underlying humanism, uh, which I think is true of, of both Fiddler on the Roof and Falsettos, the way that they are very forgiving shows of people who often do things that uh, are hard to forgive. Now, let's talk a little bit about the unconventional route that Falsettos took to get to the commercial Broadway theater. Can you tell us a little bit of the history of the Marvin trilogy and how this saga came to be? Sure. So uh, William Finn, uh, you know, brilliant composer, lyricist. Uh, at first, I think in the 70s uh, and uh, um, early 80s was just writing I think what he thought of as pop songs, even though he knew they had some, they really wouldn't fit on a top 40 chart. And they had, you know, this wild, rangy, theatrical feeling to them. And eventually, I think they all sort of coalesced into a, a show in Trousers, which uh, opened off Broadway uh, in 1979 at Playwrights Horizons. And then there were various other versions of it over the years. Um, one that opened in 1985 after March of the Balsettos. Um, anyway, In Trousers is, it's the story of Marvin who is very much based on William Finn, as I think he'd be the first to admit, um, a sort of uh, smart, too smart for his own good, as uh, his character Jason says about himself, um, ornery, uh, hypersexual, uh, hyper-intellectual, hyper-verbal uh, modern American Jew, uh, who uh, the conceit of in trousers is that he's the only male character. Uh, the other three characters are his high school sweetheart, his teacher, Miss Goldberg, whom he uh, adores and lusts after, and uh, Trina, the woman who ultimately becomes his wife. Um, uh, in the course of the show, he falls in love with his friend, Wizard Brown, and uh, discovers that he is at the very least bi uh, and uh, keeps going from there. Uh, but we don't meet Wizard. Uh, it's just Marvin and the three women. It's sort of kind of a musical. It's sort of kind of a review. Uh, the, the songs are very complete unto themselves and they don't really make a story but they're amazing. Uh, and I'm, I've never seen a production of In Trousers to my own chagrin, but I'm one of the many people who, you know, got the album, which was in fact designed by James Lapine, uh, but we'll come back to that later. Um, and then, you know, just wore out cassette after cassette of it uh, because it's just so listenable. Um, and then he teamed up with Lapine who had been the graphic designer for the In Trousers album and who was already starting to make a name for himself as a off-Broadway director and playwright. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, March of Falsettos was the first show Lupine worked on. I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, the team at Playwrights Horizons, Andre Bishop and uh, Ira Weitzman put them together. And uh, I think the great contribution of Lupine and I, they both talk about this in interviews, is structure, uh, coming back to that word, 
uh, which is what in trousers utterly lacks. It's just Finn's wild imagination going off in all directions like fireworks. And what uh, Lapine did in March of the Falsettos was contain those fireworks into a steady display of dazzling illumination. Um, and so uh, March of the Falsettos opens uh, in 1981 at Playwrights Horizons and you know, takes the off-Broadway world by storm. It's just, uh, you know, it, is he indebted to Stephen Sondheim? Absolutely. He went to Williams College because Stephen Sondheim went to Williams College. Um, but unlike a lot of people who try to imitate Sondheim, Finn never sounds like an imitator. He is his own weird beast. And people just recognize that this is, you know, they, some people had fallen in love with it in, in trousers, but it, with much of the falsettos, I think a larger community realized, oh, this is a major American theater composer. Um, and then uh, that was 1981. That's just when the AIDS crisis is really starting to um, emerge in New York. And Finn, like so many creative people in New York, I think knew a lot of people who died, knew a lot of people who lost people. Uh, it, you know, it swallowed up an entire generation uh, in general, but also I think the one place it probably hit harder than anywhere except maybe fashion was uh, musical theater. We lost an entire generation of brilliant musical theater artists and musical theater artists who never were. Um, you know, the list is very long on, on tragically. Uh, so it took a while for Finn and Lapine to, I think, think about coming back to that material and those characters. But when they did, they had to bring AIDS into it because AIDS was the story of gay men in the 1980s. Um, I don't know whether Finn was active in ACT UP or Gibbons Health Crisis or any of the other groups. Um, I should know that, but I don't. And how do you, th I mean, one of the things that you bring up in, no, in your, oh, sure. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. Of course, one of the things that you bring up in your chapter, which is so interesting, is that falsetto, false March of the Falsettos, which is act one of Falsettos, um, was written before anyone had even thought of the word AIDS. And just about every single work, gay work that comes after the AIDS crisis deals with AIDS and HIV infection in some way, shape, Absolutely. or form. Most famously, as is the normal heart. Of, of course, of course. What, what are some of the advantages of having March of the Falsettos being written at a time before, uh, before AIDS enters the scene? as opposed to going backwards and writing March of the Falsettos, let's say in 1991, but setting it in 1981. Well, that's the extraordinary thing. And I think it's one of the extraordinary things about falsettos as a work, which if we haven't mentioned so far, falsettos is actually uh, a two act musical. The first act is the former one act musical March of the Falsettos. And the second act is the one act sequel, uh, Falsetto Land, which followed that in 1990. Uh, they were then combined into a, a two act show, Falsettos. 
and the wonderful, horrible irony of March of the Falsettos is that nobody knows what's just around the bend. It's this last golden moment of uh, gay life in New York before it gets hit by the plague. And when you see the show now, it's just, even if you don't know what's gonna come, even if you don't know the show, you still feel the ache of what these characters don't know is about to hit them. Um, and then, of course, in act two, it does hit them. Uh, Wizard gets AIDS and dies of it. Um, and the power of the show weirdly comes from the fact, I think, that Finn did a little tweaking to March of the Falsettos, but it is more or less presented as it was. He actually takes one song from In Trousers and puts it into March of the Falsettos, where it works a lot better, actually. Uh, I'm breaking down uh, Trina's song. Mm. But um, it the, it's a very unusual circumstance where the dramatic irony extends not only to the characters who don't know what's what we know, but to the authors who don't know what we know. Um, Finn and Lapine didn't know what was coming, and then they preserved that work and then extended into a work where they do know what's coming and deal with it. And that combination, I just compare it in the chapter to a sucker punch because yeah. I think part of the power of it is that you don't have any of the foreshadowing that you would have if it had been written later uh, and set in the pre-AIDS era, um, which any good playwright would do. Uh, and yet the lack of that foreshadowing is part of what makes it so powerful. They don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming. And then it comes. And there's an integrity to that because it would have been very easy for them, obviously, to go back and pepper act one with little elements of foreshadowing. But you say, like you say, the sucker punch of not having any acknowledgement of the upcoming plague makes it even more powerful for the audience when we do get to that moment. Um, one of the things I was so fascinated by about, in, you know, reading your your chapter, which is I had always known that, you know, there was other gay musicals before Falsetto Land um, or Falsettos, I should say, and things like La Cajo Fall, et cetera. But I had no idea of a musical entitled Dirty Dreams of a Clean Cut Kid, uh, which I find absolutely fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular production and why? we don't talk about it as much as we do say falsettos dirty dreams of a clean cut kid is a, a little show uh that played in san francisco it's part of a at that point pretty long tradition of little gay shows little gay musicals written for a gay audience um that and shows which none of the creators ever expected to play uh to straight people uh you know these are shows that had no dreams of Broadway, had no dreams of tours, had no dreams of movie adaptations. Um, they're, they're of the moment. And as a result, they're kind of these perfect little time capsules, you know, shows like Boy Meets Boy um, and, uh, and, and Dirty Dreams of a Clean Cut Kid, which uh, is the first musical to address the AIDS crisis. It's the early 80s. It's uh, um, 
uh, a bunch of guys in a clinic waiting to get their test results. Um, it was never properly distributed. Uh, it's just a, it's a cassette mm. that you could buy from the writers. Um, I've heard some of the songs. They're, they're fine. Sure. You know, it's, it, it is, it is not a, you know, it's, it's, it's not one of my favorite musicals ever, but it's not bad. Um, and, uh, you know, it gets definite props for being the first. But because it did not have the marketing or distribution behind it the same way as a Broadway show does, it just sort of goes under the radar. Is that correct? Yeah. And also, frankly, because it's not at that level. Of course. You know, it's, it's, of course. It's, it's, it, it ain't falsettos. Of course. And I know that uh, in your chapter, you, you cite a fantastic source called QueerMusicHeritage.com. And listeners, we'll put a link to that in today's show description because I looked at that website and I learned absolutely so much about the history of queerness in musical theater from that website. So I uh, cannot recommend it strongly enough. Yeah. Uh, it's just a, a beautifully curated website that any queer musical that has ever been is on this website. Now, the big queer musical prior to Falsettos in 1992 on Broadway, we would have to say is Lacajo Fall, which in a lot sure. of ways, um, yes, moved the needle forward in terms of the fact it was the first same-sex couple as the protagonists in a musical comedy. But I know that one of the complaints about the from the gay community, as well as some critics, was it it seems like a musical version of you can't take it with you. It really isn't about queerness. It's about an eccentric family, meaning a conservative family. Um, but Falsettos is really, would you say, the first adult gay musical? That's a good way to put it. It's I th it's funny. I mean, they're both shows written by uh, uh, gay men, although Lapine is straight. Um which actually is probably significant. Uh, there is the feeling in Lacage, a show I really like and admire. Same. That it is aimed primarily at a straight audience, uh, as the movie it's based on was, mm -hmm. as The Birdcage, the remake of that movie is. Um, it is, there's not a lot of inside material. There's not a lot of... Uh, it, and there is a lot of what I think, you know, you could uncharitably call special pleading. Um, you know, it is a plea for equality. And you don't need to make a plea for equality to straight people, uh, excuse me, to gay people. You need to make a plea for equality to straight people. Um, falsettos has none of that. Uh, falsettos is just it, about gay characters and straight characters. Um, it's not a coming out show that was in trousers. It's not a plea for equality in any way. It's just about these characters' lives. And that's what I think was radical about it at the time and still feels very bracing. Um, and so, yeah, in that way, when you say, you know, the first adult gay musical, I think that's the quality. It's the, it's the first gay musical that wasn't either a coming out show or a plea for equality. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Can you talk a little bit about gay representation in film and television in the early 1990s, uh, especially for our listeners who might be too young to remember a world before Will and Grace and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and Pose? And drag well, race. I mean, again, I, I as a straight guy, I feel uh, you know a little unqualified to be doing this. As a um, gay guy, I say it's okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> you, you've given me permission. Um, and I also have a dog in this race because, as you mentioned in your introduction, I was uh, an executive on uh, the Crying Game, which was at the time taken as a groundbreaking movie uh, featuring a trans character uh, and has since been vilified by uh, some quarters uh, as being part of a long string of movies that, uh, uh, you know, demonize a trans character or that, uh, you know, are seen as not giving a trans character their full uh, humanity. That's certainly not how we felt about it at the time. Um, and I have to say, I was, uh, I, I'd been feeling kind of bad about that, of course, ever since uh, the uh, retro criticism started on the movie. And then just the other day uh, in the New York Times, I read an interview with a uh, trans performer uh, on in some recent show who talked about how the crying game was the first time she saw herself uh, represented. And uh, I, I, my, my heart grew three sizes. Oh, that's great. Um, but so, you know, I, it, it's tricky because, you know, I'm, I'm a creative person in the creative industry. So of course I have tons of gay friends and, you know, feel a responsibility to represent in my work. Um, and I've also ended up, you know, writing the lyrics to a musical about a gay couple, uh, The Kid, um, which landed me in a very funny situation where I was invited to uh, the first uh, um, LGBT reunion at Yale. And I said to the organizers, there's just one problem here. I'm straight. And they said, oh, you count as diversity. Um, oh. So uh, it, was, it was very civil of them. That's so going back to your original question, actually, I love that. Long tangent, which you could mm. cut out. Um, oh, no, I think I, I think it's fascinating. It's going to lead me to a second question, but please continue on. <coughs> Sorry, um, no worries. So going back to your question, there was, in fact, a long string of depictions in the media of demonic gay characters 
of broken gay characters, of uh, gay characters who are always othered. Um, you know, the, the Silence of the Lambs being a, a notorious example, uh, you know, the uh, bi characters in uh, uh, Basic Instinct. Um, you've got a lot of gay killers and then a lot of gay suicides um, and a lot of sort of pathetic gay characters. Um, so, and then you had special pleading and pleas for equality. Um, so this really did feel grown up and unique and fresh to just like plunk some characters down. Yep. Gay. Move it on. Got it. And, you know, one of the things that you bring up, which I think is so interesting, which is retrograde criticism, which it seems that so many um, cultural artifacts from, you know, the last 30 years or so is now undergoing a retrograde scrutiny, as in, you know, what was once, you know, I'll give you a personal example from my end, you know, as a gay man, seeing something like Will and Grace was mammoth for my generation because we were seeing a, a, a leading gay character on television. We did not care that Eric McCormick was did not I was not a gay individual. Now there's that criticism for it, which is how dare you not have a gay person play a gay character? Do you think that falsettos in any way, shape, or form might fall under some sort of retrograde criticism for the example of James Lapine? is a straight person or, you know, why is it about AIDS? Gay people have more going on in their life than AIDS. I've never seen any criticism like that. It's Neither, probably out there if you dig for it. You know what's so funny? I've dug and I can't find it. Why do you think that there's a, a, an immunity for this show? I think probably because so much of it comes out of William Finn's own life and experience. You know, it's such a personal work. Um, he is not exactly Marvin. And as the trilogy goes on, I think he is less Marvin, but there's so much of William Finn in Marvin. Um, and Lapine is, you know, co-librettist and director, but I think he would be the first to say, and Finn would certainly be uh, eager to say that Lapine is just acting as, uh, you know, a, collaborator and spirit guide and facilitator for Finn. Um, it's Finn's show. Yeah. And th so that kind of knocks that problem out. Uh, but then beyond that, how could you not write a musical about the deals with AIDS uh, in 1990? You know, um, honestly, it's all the shows that are about contemporary life that didn't address AIDS that, uh, I, I think are probably more worthy of criticism. Ah, interest, very interesting. One of the things that Falsettos does that's very unique in the overall scheme of musical theater is it's a musical that's actually taking place in the here and the now. Um, most musicals, it seems, takes place a couple of years earlier, sometimes, you know, uh, decades past. What sort of significance does that have in terms of trying to market this show to an audience, an audience that is every day watching the news and it's seeing people dying of AIDS. They're, they're watching people all around them dying of AIDS. Why would you then spend 60 or $70 to go see it in a theater? 
that was certainly the challenge that uh, Fran and Barry Weisler, the producers of the Broadway show of Falsettos faced in 1993, um, where they've got uh, this show that, uh, or 1992, excuse me, um, the show that exactly as you say, uh, is confronting things that uh, people don't necessarily want to be confronted with at what some people still think of as an escapist art form. You know, people want to go to the theater and be taken away, even if they're taken away to, um, you know, the, the non-contemporary settings of Oklahoma or the, the King and I or Carousel. Um, Would so, you, oh, sorry, yeah, go, go on. No, please. Oh, I was going to, I was going to say, can you talk a little bit about the marketing strategy that the Weislers came up with to get butts in the seats for this particular show, which everyone I'm assuming thought, oh, it's another gay show that yeah. there's the, it's, if I'm not gay, I'm probably not going to get this. That's exactly it. And they uh, they started with a beautiful piece of Keith Haring artwork, which I'm looking at right now because it's the cover of the uh, uh, published uh, script. And uh it, it's 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 these Keith Haring figures, uh, you know, uh, holding up a, a beating heart, and it's a wonderful image. But I think possibly because uh, Keith Haring was, uh, you know, himself an HIV positive uh, gay artist, uh, I think they were worried that they were falling into that very trap. So they then shifted from that to a campaign that was almost exclusively the very kind of special pleading that isn't in the show. Um, interviews, man on the street interviews with straight people talking about how amazing the show was, uh, including, you know, members of the clergy and uh, um, housewives and people who a, a straight audience in 1992 would not have expected to go to the show. And like you say in your, your chapter, it seems like you know, it almost sounds like the setup of a joke. It's a priest, a rabbi, and yeah. Miss America, That's you know, right. walk, walk into a bar. But it's okay. So it's all done to say, hey, this is not a gay show. It's not an AIDS show. It's an everyone show. Yep. Which kind and, of sort of worked. I mean, this is not one of the greater uh, hits monetarily or in terms of uh, um, performances. Uh um, how many performances did it run? I don't have about four hundred, I believe. Four. Yeah. Uh, so not a flop. Almost five hundred. Giant hit. Yeah. Um, but they they pulled it off. It ran. Uh, it, it was. Uh, it won, won a Tony. Uh, it it was. It undoubtedly had the kind of life that then led to stock and amateur and a long uh, a long tail, as they say. What are the what is the impact of something like falsettos on the the forward history of musical theater after it? You certainly have more freedom, I think, uh, that writers took for themselves in depicting different elements of gay life in musicals. Um, if you think of a show like Taboo, uh, you know the uh, Boy George show, which uh, uh, I think certainly would have had a different life uh, without falsettos. I guess the clearest inheritor is a show by a straight writer, um, but with gay characters, Rent, um, uh, you know, Jonathan Larson's extraordinary work, which has a lot of uh, 
debt to uh, falsettos. I think uh, Larson, uh, I, he didn't live long enough to give an interview in which he would talk about William Finn, but I can't imagine he wasn't a William Finn fan. There's just too many uh, Finn-esque moments in all through Rent. And uh, just the way that both shows have gay characters, straight characters, um, no special pleading. Uh, and of course, Rent takes place a few years later. So the AIDS crisis is now in a different stage. You've got uh, characters taking AZT uh, and uh, you can see the beginnings of the idea that this might someday be a medically manageable disease, but it's still killing characters. And, you know, speaking of medically manageable, a show like uh, Falsettos in which getting HIV at that time is a death sentence as opposed to now, where there is medication, where it is manageable, where it is treatable, is there still a place for Falsettos in the world of performance? Or is it a show that we say it had its time, people might not relate to it anymore, let's just put it on the shelf for historians to look at? Well, the recent... Broadway revival uh, with Kristen Borle and Andrew Reynolds and uh, Stephanie J. Block, which uh, I had some issues with, uh, but it's still fantastic to, to see the work being presented on Broadway. It did okay. Um, again, not a, a huge blockbuster. And more personally, I took my daughter to it who was a teenager and she didn't go for it. I was so excited to share this work with her that meant so much to me. And I hate to say it, she did feel the way you're just describing, which is this feels like it's about another time and another place. And I don't see how it's relevant. It's, um, yeah. As someone for whom it was intensely relevant once, it still feels relevant to me. And I think the craft will always be relevant because it's just so brilliantly, hilariously, tragically written. Do you think that now that we are, that generation has gone through their own pandemic, that maybe there'll be more resonance with this That's show? That's a really interesting point. I bet you're right. I, I hadn't even thought of that, but uh, I bet watching falsettos after the pandemic that we've just been through, it's going to feel very different and probably feel more relevant in some ways. For someone who uh, is unfamiliar with Bill Finn's work, how would you describe the essence of a Bill Finn song? His songs, most of them are crazy quilts. They just are songs that you can't imagine two people could have written. Uh, no composer would ever present a lyricist with music that stops and starts and does curly cues and somersaults. No lyricist could ever come up with a lyric first that would be that strangely, you know, uh, stream of consciousness. Uh, I don't know how he does it. Uh, and I say this as a songwriter, I don't know how he does it. Um, the, I, I've never seen him say this in an interview, but the other writer who his work reminds me of besides Sondheim is actually uh, the singer songwriter, Laura Nero, whose songs uh, have the same kind of 
stop and start and tangent and somersault quality that the fins have of just uh, you never know what's going to happen next. Uh, you think you're in a groove and then suddenly it just goes off in another direction. And yet they don't feel like they're falling apart because he's got such wit and such craft and such melody. When you sit down to write a song, what what influences of Bill Finn are you hearing in your head when you begin your lyric or book writing? It's the thing that I talked about earlier. It's that coiled spring. It's what I think of as the engine of, what is the engine of the song? What is the inner conflict or uh, unexpressed desire or um, unattainable desire what is the thing that makes this song travel from one point to another point? What is the thing that makes this song not just a simple statement? Um, none of Finn's songs are simple statements. And they usually have this conflict built into them. Uh, someone is singing about something uh, that they want while at the same time, uh, bringing about the opposite of that thing. You know, uh, Marvin and Wizard are singing about how much they love each other and how much they want to kill each other and are annoying each other in the course of the song. Um, and I, that quality, I have to say, is something that I always reach for in the song. Uh, just that feeling of what is the motor of the song that won't just run out after the first verse. And my my last question for you today is, as a as a professor of film at one of the most prestigious, if not the most prestigious university, where it comes for 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 film, is could falsettos be a movie? There was a uh, television adaptation for Showtime, which I'm embarrassed to say I have never seen. Um, I don't even know if it's available. Um, I've thought about it. I thought about it a lot in the time since I was working on this chapter for this book. Um, and I think it could be. It's such a theatrical work and extremely theatrical works are often very difficult to adapt into satisfying movies. Um, I just saw the movie of Garavan Hansen, which I loved, but clearly uh, already not everyone is loving it. Um, and I do think it is that intense theatricality that puts some people off. And is that something that when you're making a movie musical that you just need to embrace and say the audience that doesn't understand it just doesn't understand it? Or do you have to really change that idea and thinking to make it palatable to all audiences that are watching it in a movie theater? There are two different schools of thought about that. Um, I worked on the early development of the film of Chicago, uh, but I didn't work on the version that you've seen. Um, the version that I worked on, well, first there was a script by Larry Gelbart, but then um, I worked quite a lot on a version that was going to be directed by Nick Heitner and uh, had a screenplay by uh, the late great Wendy Wasserstein. Mm. And that was very much just a theatrical, here we are, people bursting into song version of Chicago, you know, as it might have been done by a really wised up uh, Vincent Minnelli. Mm. And uh, 
people didn't want to make that version. There was the feeling we can't just have characters bursting into song and dance. There's got to be some reason for it, some explanation for it, which is exactly what Rob Marshall came up with in the final film of Chicago, where the musical numbers are all happening in Roxy's mind. And that somehow seemed to take the curse off it for people who don't like musicals, which is one reason that Chicago is one of the few musicals to win the best picture and to, to reach an audience beyond the musical audience. Um, as a member of the musical audience, I understand that, but I kind of resent it because mm. uh, I love people bursting into song and dance. My favorite musical, besides uh, Singing in the Rain, which is everyone's favorite musical, um, is Jacques Demy's The Young Girls of Rochefort, ah. in which people burst into song and dance often for no reason whatsoever, which is the best possible reason to break into song and dance. Do you think there's a, a one more last question? I'm sorry. Do you think there's a cinematic equivalent to Bill Finn? Somebody whose voice is so unique the way Bill Finn's is in musical theater, but an equivalent for cinema? You could make an argument for Wes Anderson, mm. um, just in terms of that absolute commitment to his own eccentricities. Um, the way that you watch one frame of a Wes Anderson movie and you know you're watching a Wes Anderson movie and similarly you hear a couple notes of a Bill Finn song you know it's a Bill Finn song because nobody else would have put those notes together I I love that analogy I love that analogy now if Wes Anderson and Bill Finn could collaborate on a movie musical I would be there on opening night (laughs) we would all be there ready to go Professor Leshner thank you so much for joining us today the chapter is absolutely fantastic and as, as a as a gay man I would like to just thank you for all the beautiful work that you put into it and taught me so much about my community that I had not been aware of before so thank you for that Thank you so much, Rob. It's been a joy to be a part of this project. Ah, oh, thank you. Friends, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about falsettos, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. Four Jews in a room bitching. Four Jews in a room plot. Hey, He's bitching, they're bitching, we're bitching, bitch, 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 funny, 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 bitch, 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 all the time. What do they do for Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.